Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Thanks for tuning into the pod, guys. And before we start, I do want to say a big thank you to all of you that listen and the messages that you guys send in. I think Long Long and I roll out episode after episode. It's not like we physically see any of you guys uh, when we record. So I just want you to know I, I don't take you guys for granted. And thank you for supporting the pod, you know, from its infancy. Now for the guest today, I first came across him on the platform Clubhouse years ago where I found out, you know, he spoke extremely well publicly. And back then I had already made a mental note that I should invite him on to the podcast. This is going to be a two episoder as the gentleman in question has had rather a distinguished career, first as a watch salesperson on the floor, and then as a consultant to independent brands. It's my pleasure to welcome Spanish Rob to the show. Welcome, Rob. Hi, Hi thank you so much for having me. It's quite an honor. <laughs> that was almost like Tim Bilio, wasn't it, Long Now? <laughs> I mean, I've been learning. That is, oh, okay. Well, I tried. I tried. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of shit he pulls, right? I thought, oh, I did quite well there. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, I think this is going to be an interesting show because although we've had a variety of people on, you know, collectors and each collector's like journey has been different and brand people and media people, I do believe this is the first time we've had actually a salesperson in the room like a watch salesperson in the room so perhaps Aside we can blow Austin. away a few minutes oh. <laughs> yeah, <Austin>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, i do appreciate you trying to make me feel special though i really do <laughs> <laughs> anyway um for my first question and for the audience sake it would be really helpful if you could give us a brief and a very i do mean brief background into you like what got you into sales in the first place and then roughly how you progressed. Um, I'll try to make it as abridged as possible because I'm a bit of a monologist. Um, so bear with me. But I guess the, the long short would be my passion in, in psychology. And I went to school for behavioral psychology. And from a young teenager, when I started working, I ended up gravitating towards sales jobs. And I'm not going to lie to you, the first couple of years when I was a teenager, I hated them. And I kept trying to get away from them. I even, uh, I, I worked at a Staples and and would be pulled into the business department to do sales. And I was like, I just want to stock shelves. And I remember getting a job at a shop, right? At a, at a local supermarket and just wanting to like work in the dairy department. And they're like, yeah, no, you should probably do sales. Um, so ultimately I caved when I was in college and I let a, a friend who offered me a, a position at a jewelry store, a chain store called sales. And I worked there for about three and a half years in the mall. And that's kind of where I, that was my first uh, bit into luxury, even though it was sales and it wasn't really that luxurious, but I learned about diamonds and we had the most minimal amount of watches. Uh, like Movado was a top brand and I learned every single thing that there was about Movado more than the rep. Uh, the rep would be like, I have no idea what these things are called, <laughs> but I knew every single model. And we had like Seiko Citizen and like Esquire and stuff like that. Um, but this would uh, catapult me to watches once Torno started expanding in the mid 2000s and they were blowing up and they had this uh, this huge plan to open up five stores every year in the, in the States. And they at the point were the largest retail watches in the world. So they opened up a, a store in my mall in, in New Jersey 
And I jumped ship and I went there the first month they opened uh, and absorbed. I was, I was young. It was my, my early 20s. And I absorbed everything like a sponge and became very quickly the top salesperson there immediately and did a lot of great things there for, for those two years um, until I did everything I could there, did a bunch of records, was a top salesperson for Torno, uh, for the brand and for their watch protection plan and helped them expand that and then became a national trainer. So that was kind of like my transition from doing sales there for two something years uh, and then moving on to something because I, I was just so enamored with the industry, meeting all the reps because I was the person uh, dealing with all the reps for the brand and doing all the trainings. And I was just so enthusiastic um, that I would eventually meet the brands overseas. I'd meet the reps and I'd see how their, their path was. And most at the time, a lot of sales reps were salespeople who eventually got poached to being reps who eventually would become like Adam Bossy would be uh, like a president of a brand and move their way up. So I saw there was a, a direct career path. And at the time, a very young me was just like, what do I do in my life? What do I do with my degree in psychology? And I had realized after fighting it for so long that my passion in psychology and behavioral psychology was working really well as almost as a detective for people in, uh, in, in, in sales. Okay. I have a question. Sure. I like one of my biggest regrets is not studying psychology. And I realized when I talk to people and even like through this podcast, I just love analyzing people. So from your point, like, so going back to your previous job, right? Um, what did you learn first in terms of how, let's say how women think and when it comes to jewelry and how did you play on it? Like, how did you convince them to buy something? Were there some tricks and tips or whatever? Yeah, I, you know, I, the thing is I honed on that. I honed on the skills I, that psychology was beneficial. Um, when I started working with watches, I probably didn't even realize why I was good at it the whole time I was doing jewelry or anything else before that. I did years of telemarketing as a child. Like as a, like when I say child, I mean, I was a teenager mm. and I was good at it. And I just, I just hated it so much, but essentially you were trying to connect with people. And what I've learned as, because of like, when I was finally selling something that I really wanted to sell when it was, when it was watches, I realized that there was a very simple key set of, of rules to follow, which essentially was product knowledge, education, earning trust. Um, and when I say that is uh, there's, there's a little bit of a, of a, a story where to understand the psychology behavior behind people coming in um, you have to understand that that store that I worked at Torno um, everyone was either young uh, well, not young, like the middle age, like they had to work in watches. They knew nothing about watches or they're like retired people who just were like filling time. And we had a few senior citizens there that, you know, white hair, didn't know much about watches. They were just like kind of bored and they were, they were lovely people and they were great. But the funny thing is, I remember there's this guy named Frank. He was tall, former CEO of a company, like kind of retired, was there, but he was a joker. So he would tell people anything. He would lie to them. But you have to understand the psychology between when you walk into a place, the tallest person, usually the, the person that looks the oldest mm -hmm. is what people assume. We all subconsciously assume yeah. that they're the, the most wisest person in the room. Mm -hmm. So people would go to Frank and ask him questions and he'd be like, yeah, sure. The Omega Speedmaster has a Sapphire crystal. And I'm like, that's a moon watch. It does not. It's a head slate. Like, yeah, it's an automatic. And they're like, We're, stop <laughs> lying to these people. What are you doing? And you understand um, that I understood that people would come in and just assume that the tallest, oldest person knew everything when he actually knew the least. So 
I had an uphill challenge at the time. I was a long haired Hispanic kid with the yeah. youngest person. Yeah. People were like, why would this kid know anything about watches if I'm literally older? I have watches that are older than him. Yeah. And I took it as a challenge to educate myself completely as much as humanly possible. I knew where every single one of the 1200 watches were in my store. If they were, if I was off one day, mm-hmm. I knew, I was like, what got sold? Where was it? You know, exactly. And so I knew that because I was just so anxious, like a sponge to learn everything about every brand. And we had 30 brands um, and it was one of the few stores that didn't sell Rolex or Paddock. Um, so we had an uphill challenge to make like a million dollar salesperson, uh, be a million dollar salesperson. And it it just, I learned everything about those 30 brands, the Cartier, the Jaeger, the ABC. Mm-hmm. And with that product knowledge, when people would come in, I'd be able to, when I say a detective and how therapists are also detectives, mm-hmm. they, you have the answer, but they ask you a set of questions. The key is to ask less questions and pinpoint and hone in on what they want. So a, a person would come in, I'd ask them maybe three questions and then decide based on the questions I asked them, what three watches in the store, because I know where everything is, I know what we have, what three watches would lead to a sale, which ones I should show him or her and close that sale. Well, what were those three questions then? Um, it would be based off of what they were looking for and what they wanted. So I'd ask them, um, basically okay so what are you looking for is it because sometimes they know exactly what they want half the time they don't and sometimes people would just str- like would wander in and torno revolutionized um the retail industry which a lot of people don't get enough credit for um because of the cpo trade in that they did and they would literally take watches off people's wrists but I, i'm good that's a that's a different story so somebody would come in and they might even be looking to, to buy a watch um and i would convince them to take the sell the watch they were wearing by asking them like, what were they looking for? What was something new that they wanted? Sometimes they didn't know. And I'd ask them like their occupation. Were they, you know, uh, were they were they a construction worker? Were they a teacher? Were they a lawyer? Were they looking for something on a strap or a brace that's something they could get wet? Were they working with kids? Were they working in a restaurant? Or were they, did they want something that they could wear with a suit? Was it an anniversary thing? Was it something that they, they wear occasionally? Or is it this, is this just like that first good watch they want that they want to wear? 24 seven and they want to wear it for years because people come in with the perspective as, Oh, I want one watch. And they think this is the one watch they're going to have for the rest of their life. And I'd have that conversation with people like, it's not going to be, but let's pretend it is, <laughs> you know, let's, let's, let's say um, you want that bright and a bracelet. Um, and some people who, are who would want that though. You'd be surprised <laughs> in the 2000s, in 2004, 2005. Oh my God. You sold a lot of Breitling's Omegas and Tag Hoyers. Yeah, probably drove a BMW. Yeah, <laughs> in New Jersey, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Short sleeves, short sleeve shirts. Be wary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was very much. Um, it was very much. Yeah, let me ask you a set of questions to see, engage where you are and what you want it for, and then I'd say, you know what, you want a Cartier Roadster. This is probably what you want. And let me show you this. Mm-hmm. Depending on the price point that they're in, because that's also the like the second or third question. The most important question now today with clients, one of the first person the things I ask, it's regardless of anything and everything, let's let's go with your budget. What's what's your budget range? Are you in the five to ten thousand dollar range? What do you feel comfortable spending? And then if that's your top, how much more than that would you spend? Because there's you might do more. <laughs> um, so you know, things like that. Yeah, I, I kind of agree because like when I meet clients now, Philips, and you really do have to have like a budget in mind because it just narrows the selection down significantly. You know, if you, if you don't, and you can't say I have, even if you say like, I have a limited budget, that doesn't mean they're interested in like a thousand dollar pieces. 
do you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's still a range that you're mm -hmm. that you're interested. If you have no budget, you're probably interested in like three hundred thousand plus or something. You know, and it's really so, important to focus on that. It's really important to yeah. like clarify what the actual range is. Yeah, so I much so. Yeah. Um, I've so thought, just like, yeah. Sorry, I like I, this suddenly popped into my mind because I read this thing before about um, furniture sales, and this top furniture salesperson said, you know, what you should do is speak less. So after you're like, okay, this person's seventy percent there, just shut up and just stand there because they will probably convince themselves they need this thing. And there was a few times with jewelry that I realized people get really uncomfortable when it's silent, right? So you, I'm there like looking and in my head, I'm convinced I'm about to pay for this. I want to buy this. But because the salesperson said, it looks great on you, blah, 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 blah. I was like, no, I can't buy it now. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it really I, was, huh? I was just thinking like what Rob said earlier, yeah. you know, like tall, wise, you know, Caucasian guy. Yeah. You know, I, I'm like fucking short, like not like <laughs> I look like a fucking 12 year old. Yeah, <laughs> thankfully, we're not like occasion. Yeah, like <laughs> the world yeah, has changed. Think, quite a bit, thankfully, yeah, that would be uh, maybe I could have just targeted the uh, Asian market, <laughs> which is quite lucrative, actually, isn't it? I mean, um, back in the 2000s, before before uh, Blend Climber and Hodinkee and the internet and social media, it was such a different world, and it's it was. It was such a different. It, your your average watch collector was forty to sixty year old white male business owner on the forum boards, and Watch Time magazine was the only thing. And I remember when Revolution Number One came out <laughs> because I was working at that store, but that was it. Like that's all. So you're you had guys just on forum boards, and it was such a niche thing. No one knew. We people came in and asked for an education on Omega and Tag Heuer, which is like such a different world than today. Yeah. yeah i guess when you talk about the education that was part of your answer earlier you know there wasn't that many avenues to get the education right so as a salesperson if you could provide that you're actually providing like a big value add nowadays just go on your phone you know just type in the watch i think he's probably got it like aside from five other publications right yeah. that have their opinion on it and it's just oh yeah yeah just so much uh, information is uh so much more accessible but going back to the original question like which was like your career. I know because I've spoken to you before, you've only mentioned the part of it, but you know, you eventually would go on to this thing called Time Machine and even eventually to um, Tiffany, right? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. So could you just yeah, detail yeah. that as well? And what, what Time Machine is it? Does it still exist? Like was or is? And then <laughs> how you got onto Patek? So the Time Machine was the world's largest retailer, and it was it was founded in nineteen eighty in 1997 by Tourneau. And at the time, they were the biggest retailer in the world, and that was the physical largest actual store until they made a bigger one in Vegas. Um, but the Time Machine was, in, the, in its heyday, for any of those people listening who remember, uh, was the biggest deal in the watch world that if Panerai or Jaeger or Paddock or anyone made such few watches that they made, let's say 10, a limit of 10, like when Panerai had their Turbion, they made 10 watches. Two of them came to the United States. One went to the West Coast to West Time and the other went to the Time Machine because it was the epicenter of retail stores in the East Coast. So this was the the zenith of what most people in retail like strive to achieve, especially within the company. So people would come from all 50 or 20, I can't remember how many stores it was. It may have been close to 50 at the time. Um, we're coming from all the, all the stores to take their shot at working at the time machine in, in, in Manhattan, in New York City, um, to work at the upper level where you had 
all the top brands. You had your Vacheron, your Panic, your Rolex, your IDC, uh, Jaeger, Chapard, all of it. And every person, salesperson's uh, goal up there was the equivalent of a store in any random city. Uh, all the salespeople downstairs, all it was the top floor of the store and it was the epicenter where brand CEOs would come in and knew the salesperson's names and families, you know, and I was blown away. Cause I remember when Jerome Lambert came in one day, he was like, Antonio, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Cause they had the, the salespeople there were, were basically celebrities. They had relationships with direct relationships with CEOs of brands because that's how often they came there. And we were right down the street at the time from all of corporate North America, from Richemont and, and everyone at the time. So, um, it was a big deal to, to go there eventually. And what happened, my story is I would go into national training for about half a year and it was amazing. I had, I had given up the opportunities of possibly being a rep for a few different brands and having to move cities. And my, when I told my company, I was just like, Hey, I want to move on from sales. I'm going to finish out my year, be a million dollar salesperson and broke these records where I was like one of the 10 people to do it without Rolex, which is a very difficult feat. Um, but I was like, okay, now I actually want to, do something in corporate and, and, you know, move on. They said, be a national trainer. I applied, I get the job. And I last about six years, 2008, as you remember, the recession happened. Um, I remember coming into the office one day and heads were getting chopped off left and right. I mean, I saw senior VPs, people that were at the company for like 20 years, like screaming and crying. And everyone's like running around like mad. And thankfully, because I was one of the only, what I call blue collar worker that was coming from the, the retail world to work in the corporate world, I had the benefit uh, I remember the VP sat me down and was like, you know, you can go back, you can be a manager, you can do whatever you want. We'll put you in any store in the country. If you want to go to Hawaii, you want to go anywhere. I said, all right, well, put me in the time machine. I want to give it, I want to give it a crack. I want to try my hand at, if I'm going to do sales, I'm going to do it the, the top place in the mm -hmm. entire world. Mm -hmm. So I did it and it was uh, two and a half months and it was amazing. And I made goals, which are completely unheard of. You can't make a goal there. People would come from all over the country. You did try it. And they would fail and they have to either leave the company or they go back to the store they came from. Because you have to understand to do such a huge quota of like a quarter million dollars to say, and you still have $7,000, $4,000 IWCs and Jaegers that are being sold. So it's not much different than the other stores, but you had to have the clientele and the backing of these huge whales who would come in and buy like a you know a quarter million dollar or like a hundred thousand dollar Vacheron or Paddock. And that wasn't just something that you just got off the street. You could get lucky, but it took years of, of establishment and like just... I don't want to say luck, but it was partially for me, it was luck. It was a combination of really, really trying to like fight off the sharks because they were the most vicious salespeople in the history of, of my sales tenure. And anyone I talked to, if you talk to any person who worked in sales back then, they would always talk about the sharks of, of the upper level of the time machine because they were vicious. They would fight amongst each other and steal each other's sales. And I'm talking about like, there was millions of dollars on the, on the line. These people were making six to seven figures. It was unheard of. It was insane. And that was a normal thing in sales. It's not a normal thing today. I mean, unless you maybe are like a Richard, uh, uh, Roger, um, uh, what's that? I can't even think of the brand, but unless you work in like really high end sales, it's just not a Richard thing. Richard Mayo. Thank you. Oh, yeah. I was like, what? Oh, um, so what is it like there now? Because there isn't stock, right? And it's like nowadays you have, just any, not anyone can walk in, but anyone that can walk into already want to buy a certain watch already has that money anyways. So um, the time machines evolved and changed quite a bit. 
a couple of years ago, it just made sense. They were, they were, they had gone through three CEOs. They had, a lot of, a lot has changed and Bucherer, I was actually pretty excited to see the expansion of some of these European family owned Swiss watch brands that were doing really well, Bucherer and uh, Guberlin. And you have a few of them and for some, for this, to see them make the, the transition over into the States to try their hand here. You have watches Switzerland and, and Bucherer. We were like, let's, let's try North America, which made sense. It's been years in the making. And got a great deal by getting like a $400 million worth of product for a hundred mil. I knew this was going to happen. And I'm just glad that Booker, which is such a great brand, they did it. They took over and they've completely revamped that store. It looks so different. And they slowly would make the, the transition mm-hmm. in the name from Torno to Booker, uh, which they're still doing, but they've basically changed the name to Booker now. So it says Booker on the outside. It's still considered the time machine because it's kind of historic, mm-hmm. um, but now it's theirs and it's different. Uh, and I can't say to what they do now. I'm sure they do well under the Bucharich, uh, you know, uh, family. Yeah. Um, they probably still have really good clients and they probably still do a lot of business. I would assume it's not the mm-hmm. same, but back then it was a very much. Uh, how, 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 how is the sales different though? Because like, I think, you know, you can't get pieces now. Yeah. Right. So is the is the sales job a, a different animal now than it was back then? So it's I think it's very common for most of us to think, okay, you just can't get watches. But the reality is more watches are probably being produced than they were even 10, 15 years ago. And all those watches that are being produced are going to people. So it really depends on are you a bigger fish of a retailer? than others. And I'll give you the answer. Yes. In New York city, especially a, a, a huge store, like the time machine for Booker is probably one of the largest retailers for a lot of brands in North America, or at least the East coast. Cause then you have so many doors that closed over the last couple of years. And yeah, you have your random Rolex paddock dealer in like Iowa or Minnesota or whatever random state, but your bigger fish where a lot of things are going to get allocated are still going to be to New York and the East coast and the West coast. Mm-hmm. So are they selling? Yes. To everyday people, no, but they have a huge list. And because they've had the tenure and they've been around for so long, they have a larger list, but they also get a larger allotment from every brand because they need to, because they have the the heritage. Like Tiffany being such a large, like an old retailer, when I worked with Paddock there, I could tell you, we got a lot more Paddocks depending on the model mm. than a lot of other retailers. So I would talk to a, an AD um, who'd been around, maybe they were in AD for Paddock for like 50 years, but Tiffany's been since 1852. So we're like 150 years in. And we were basically the the main resource for North America when it came to Tech Philippe. So when we when something came in, they'd ask us first. They'd be like, you have somebody who wants this mini repeater, this turbion mini repeater. So there'd be an allotment of so many watches that come in and they would ask us first. Um, and Torneau at the time, the heyday back in the 2000s were similar. So like I said, when Panerai came out with their first Turbion, they'd say, okay, you guys want two. You want, what can you get? They're like, yes, give us everything and anything. And they would get to two. But you think that random retailer in Florida would get one? No, they would. They would. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I, but you ran out of watches to sell, right? Because if, if you're at Tiffany right now, everybody wants a 5711 or 5811 now. Tiffany Dahl, right? As a salesperson, is that you, I know you're getting more stock, right? But you're not, you still haven't got enough su- supply to sell to everybody that's coming in. Am I right? Yeah. I think the salespeople are fine with 
I think I'm assuming the state solution have to be um, they have to be pretty dynamic and and decide to sell things that were more available. And they had to I think it forced salespeople to learn about the brands they didn't want to. And it forced what I consider lazy salespeople out because now lazy salespeople were very much like just people would come in and buy things. And you were in a salesperson, you were a clerk, but you were taking orders for paddocks and Rolexes and a dynamic salesperson who really understood all the other brands were saying, okay, no, we don't have that Nautilus or even the Vacheron overseas now, but come over here and take a look at this Alpine Eagle from Chapard. The, the, the salesperson who, you know, educated them the most would, would move. And I, I think that's what happened in the industry the last couple of years. You learn that like you had to start showing other things and people had to learn. And the people who survived are the ones who educate themselves and decide, okay, I'm going to show people this Bell and Ross. I'm going to show people this, this Chapard. Ross. Yeah. I mean, in the upper level, I mean, there's everything, but you had, I was thinking of all the brands in the last five years who decided to come up with a steel integrated bracelet, which is a good business model because they saw how successful it was. And it did well for everyone, regardless of how much we want to make fun of them. It did well for everyone to, to make a steel integrated sports model. Um, and if you were a savvy salesperson, you learned to adapt and not be lazy and just take orders for right. the stuff that sells out. So it's part of that adaption, making the client buy a lot of shit to get. Always. Yeah, that's right. That's the name of the game of sales. Yeah. I like to think it as a shepherd. Like you you want to shepherd, shepherd people to what they okay. want. All right. Yeah. I would shepherd people to like what they what they could use, what they wanted. Okay. Um, but you yeah. <laughs> a shaman, if you will. I don't know. <laughs> how do you become considered um a whale? Like, how do you even get onto the list of anything? Yeah. You just have to spend a lot of money. And in 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 it was different in every era. It was yeah. slightly different, but there were different times now because the demand is so low compared i mean demand is so high compared to yeah. the supply it's become a lot more difficult but before it was as easy as just buying a watch like a gold day day date you know back in the day you, yeah. i mean that whole concept of people like having to buy something to get something else has been around for a very long time it just wasn't as um it wasn't as uh public people didn't yeah. know it but now you have like a million people on every social media channel talking about how rigged everything is yeah. and now things come to light but it's been something that's been since the gray markets existed. It's been something from a very long time ago where people put extra money, pulled some okay. strings just yeah. to get, you know, yeah. privileges. All right. So this podcast is called The Waiting List, right? So you've mm -hmm. got people that are waiting and we're talking about not your average Joe. You've got whales waiting for the same piece, right? Oh, yeah. How, in terms of your knowledge, was the allocation actually given? to x whale to as opposed to y whale <laughs> i will tell you yeah. that a little kindness goes a long way and i will tell you that when i always tell people the advice i'd give them for years for years years i'm just saying hey befriend your local ad um show up every week and annoy them and even if they don't like you like they will remember you They'll remember your name. Like, oh, hey, Brian. Oh, he's just here to come take a look at the Aquanaut. He's he's come every week for the last eight weeks to come and look at something. And I mean, this is when things used to be in the, in the case. And they're not anymore, obviously. But you'd have that random guy who would come in every single week. So three years from now, everyone in the store knows him. The manager knows him. Like everyone knows who this person is. So when he says, okay, when you finally get this piece, let me know. Mm -hmm. And you guys are rattling off on the list in, your, in the back. You're like, oh, we have this list mm -hmm. of random people. And at the time, when I was doing, when I was Patek Philippe, it was 
we all had lists, but it was very loose. And at the time, because the demand wasn't there, we'd call people and they'd be like, oh, I got it somewhere else already. I bought something else. It's been six yeah. months, yada, yada. So maybe you'd come around and you'd get to that guy. Now, this doesn't work necessarily for Daytonas or special pieces that since the beginning of time, they've been held specifically as bargaining chips. So it's a little different. You can't just put your name on the list for a Daytona without any spend and just assume you'll get that or 5711 or a 50, uh, you know, 15202. That doesn't really work. It's not impossible unless you found an AD who just was happy to have it and they just were yeah. feeling, feeling like they could give it to you. Otherwise, that almost never, ever happened. I've got a question then sure. because I've heard from other people as well that you have to keep going and bug the the, the mm. guy, right? And that is actually very different to my nature. And I think long, long's nature. Mm. Like, don't you find that annoying? Like, don't you think this guy is sitting there, I'm having coffee with him, and there's two hours gone. Like, why is that a good thing? Why is that a good impression? It's funny because even salespeople wouldn't like, be like, oh, it's this guy, he's gonna waste my time. But it just depends on the salesperson. Some people were very much like annoyed by people who would just come in and like waste their time. And other people were interested. And if you were an interesting person, we had this one guy who's a longtime collector, never bought anything from us. I don't think he did until later, maybe until after I left. But he would come in and he would bring the best lemon, uh, the key lime pie in Manhattan. <sighs> And he'd come and, he, and we were at Tiffany's and Tiffany's was like yeah. slot. We were just basically yeah. hanging out and yeah. he'd come in and he'd bring in this pie every once in a while. And he'd sit me and Kelly, uh, Kelly Yock, who's now at uh, Watch Switch On, we were working together and he'd come and he'd talk to us for two hours and tell us stories. He'd show us the things that he bought. And he was like, I got, you won't believe where I bought this from an AD in like New Zealand. And he'd show us the most ridiculous things. We're like, oh my God. Um, but he became a friend of ours. So he knew after building rapport for a few years and feeding us and bribing us with, with, you know, with teas and or with, with, uh, with pastries that, you know, if he needed something one day, we might, we might be like, you know what? All right. That guy's all right. We know him. And building the rapport is the biggest uh, advice I can give with people. Don't annoy people. Be good. Be kind. Say hello. Give them gifts. Showers. You know, be somebody that they remember. Yeah. And in whatever way you want to do that, be somebody that they'll remember. Dude. And then, you know, when you want something, maybe they're like, okay. Okay. That guy. Pie just, I'm just sales just increased like twofold yeah. <laughs> uh, in the bay area, or the, the area. <laughs> you'd be surprised it was it was interesting because it did it did annoy people sometimes when you have that same guy who was just kind of like yeah exactly didn't have he's this not spending good... he's not spending I... anything and he just wants that watch right and you kind of know that a whale has spent i don't know a quarter of a mill pretty hard right even if yeah, he so brings the best the... key lime pie in it's not <laughs> it was just it was all so much more about rapport at the time now it's a different game and the the advice unfortunately you're gonna get beat out you know nine out of ten times by a dealer who came in and spent and bought all the jewelry and ladies day just that they yeah. didn't want and now they're gonna be bumped to the very top of the of the of the uh of the list so my advice is to find uh, an honorable AD that you connect with and and build a really good bond with and a good relationship with. And then they exist. They're few and far, but I believe they exist. I believe there's a lot of good ones out there. I believe there's a lot of mom and pop ones. There's a lot of small ones out in the middle of nowhere. Some that don't get attention enough. Some find, I always like to find a nerd in every place in every retail store, regardless yeah. of whether it's watches or not. I want the person who's yeah. excited to be there. I don't want the person who's just punching in and out. I want the person who can educate me and teach me something that I didn't know. And that's what I aimed to be when I first started. 
So I had these people that were three times my age who had day dates that were older than me. They didn't know that their watches were automatic and they could wind them. And I would love educating people. And that's how I built such a loyal fan, like client base and became such a, a, a successful salesperson. Mm. I, yeah. I like, you need to come to Hong Kong. <laughs> like, <laughs> you need to see what's going on. Like I would love to. Everyone would... looks so bored. I mean, yeah. yeah. Fault, they can't even take the watches out of the, the booth and I can't, I can't blame them. They're bored and it's cold inside. The aircon's too high. So they're sleepy. And oh my everything. God. And then you're talking to them. And then the first thing they always say, even though I know nothing about Rolex, I know nothing. They're like, you know more than me. And it's like, like, (laughs) yeah, because I think in Hong Kong, right, it's more like what Rob was saying about being the clerk rather than being a salesperson. And I talked to other brands about it. Yeah, because Hong Kong has been like from mainland China, they've had so many low hanging fruits. They kind of lost the skill of like being a salesperson. You know, they just like literally just bring a watch out. It's sold, you know, like not a lot of efforts required. the bar, yeah. the bar for a good salesperson in watches over the years has diminished. It's become so much lower and lower that now they're so eager to get people who know nothing about watches from like who sold anything from furniture to sneakers to whatever. And they bring them into the watch sales. They're like, here, we'll teach you everything to know. And I let me tell you, if I wanted to go back into sales, like, and I, I sort of wanted to dip my head back in for years. I couldn't do it regardless of my expertise and knowledge, because they don't want somebody that knows things about watches. They want people who know nothing about watches, mold them and kind of like own them and have them be like these people. But the the, the problem with that, because they're, they work at a lower pay rate, obviously, mm-hmm. and, and everyone's the same, is that they exactly that they're not they're uninspired. They're not interested. Maybe you get that one person who like gets really into it and starts listening to podcasts and reading all the magazines. Um, but they're far and few between, unfortunately. Mm. Do you think, um, you know, now value retention in the consumer's mind, you know, do you think that's a question that gets asked more than it back in, back in before, like where they say, oh, uh, is this going to go up as an investment? You know, that investment a, side. A, a million percent. I can't, I can't, tell you how I have people coming from the woodworks, people who know nothing about watches that I've known for the last 20 years who message me on a daily basis. Hey, so I want to get a watch. It's a good investment. And I'm like, Oh, Jesus Christ. Like just now, not everyone, not just people in the watch, not people who are interested in watches the last 20 years, but now people who weren't interested in watches now, because the value retention has become such a major part and has been picked up by mainstream media in so many different regards. Mm-hmm. Whilst, you know, you know, uh, FT and wall street and everyone. So there's articles about it constantly that people are con- now the normal public are just like, wait a minute, is this something I need to invest in? Is this something I should be doing? And that added a huge layer to the people who are already into watches. It's a, it's a question that you can't avoid. Yeah, it, People who were into watches for a long time are just like, I guess I have to kind of, you know, can you give me advice? Is this going to hold its value well? What, what's it going to look like? And it's very much like the stock market that I try to educate them. Yeah. And, and tell them like, there's, you know, it's like a stock. It could be fine one day. Everyone thought Bitcoin was going to go to a hundred. That didn't happen. Like there's a lot of things that fluctuate and nothing is secure. Nothing is is certain. There's certain things I can tell you that were pretty steadfast over the years and through my experiences of seeing the retail market and and the industry have went up and down over the last two decades. Um, I use my expertise for clients, helping people source and uh, sell watches because of that. Um, so I benefited from that, but at the same time, it's not, it, it's, it's not easy. And you're like, you, like you said, everyone, everyone does ask about it mm-hmm. and a lot more, a lot. Right. I have another question. 
bit left field, but was there any time where you looked at a watch and thought, fuck man, how do I sell this? Like, did you hate selling it? Did you think this has got nothing going for it, right? Like, <laughs> like, why did we even bring this in? Like, was there anything like that came in that you particularly just, when, when the customer like asked for it, you're kind of dragging your heels to the, to the cabinet, right? And thinking, I'm going to do this. I'm going through the motions here. I'm not passionate about it. And in the end, you're not going to buy it. <laughs> like... <laughs> It's hard to say because I'm there's definitely watches I don't like, um, and I'm trying to think of what I may not have been enamored of, and it probably came across because people have always told me I'm very expressive with my face and every single thing. I can't hide any emotion. I'm very expressive, um, so I probably wasn't like enthralled. You're right. I probably went through the motions, but I think the salesperson side of me, and at the time I was very young, very poor, like just trying to make something out of myself. So I was very hungry and I would stay on that sales floor until I made my goal. I would, I, I would just not leave. I was determined and I would not let people leave. And I had such a ridiculous high selling rate of like, I sold three out of five, every person, uh, a watch protection plan um, at the time when that was a thing. I had the highest in the company, 60%. Um, so I was a bit of a bulldog. I was, I was like, I would not let people leave without a either buying a watch if it was feasible. If there was even the slightest bit of somebody buying a watch coming in, sometimes they didn't plan on it. They just walked in. And they're like, oh my, but you know, my my wife and kids are shopping. Oh no, I'm good. Like I have this watch. I've had it forever. I'm like, how do you feel about upgrading? And it that would that would, <laughs> and that was that was kind of I I was I I just pushed through it. I kind of think like earlier in the podcast when you mentioned the brand called Esquire, that can't have been good. That can't have been good, <laughs> right? Like I've never heard of that watch. The only Esquire I know was a guy's magazine back in the UK. Like <laughs> it just cannot be a good watch, right? Am I right it, in that? It's not. It's not. It was actually. It was probably a decent brand compared to uh, your, the Michael Kors of the world, which would be garbage. Um, or Daniel Wellington. Esquire was the sub-brand of Movado, which they eventually rebranded and actually came out with again. They have Movado Bold, which is basically what Esquire used to be. Yeah. Right. Okay. I know. I know. Nuts. They the, These sub-brands that were in the two, three hundred, there was a lot of money to be made. So That is the hot market, right? I remember there's like, um, there was this guy that kind of must have had the equivalent store in the UK of Time Machine. It's called Marcus Watches. I don't know if you you know it. And yeah, you Marcus. It was yeah, but he, I think I I heard that he made his money selling Seconda, right? That he <laughs> yeah 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 Seconda. You know that watch that you see in duty free at the airport, right? That less than really? like a hundred dollar watch. Yeah, he he, wow. he he that was his, and that's where his income came to to basically be able to like him allow him to play in this kind of really high end kind of. Um, that makes a lot of sense because a lot of people think there's more money in really expensive watches and the reality the reality is there isn't and back in the mid 2000s the the average watch sales i think the majority of watch sales was between two and five hundred dollars so michael kors and eventually daniel wellington would make a huge mint because of such high profit margins you're, you're making a two three dollar watch selling it for a hundred percent or a thousand percent or whatever it is you're just selling it for like a couple like a hundred dollars with such huge margins and you get the biggest market share the two to five hundred dollar range at the time was the biggest market share of people who buy watches and it might still be i haven't checked the, the data mm -hmm. but for that reason if you were that's why daniel wellington became like what it is today and it's in like every supermarket 
in, I mean, every, um, I'm sorry, every airport and like every, <laughs> everywhere, every, probably, they probably still have supermarkets too. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> they sell them everywhere. And it became such a good marketing uh, brand because of that, that profit margin of just being in that price point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to also ask a question, right? Um, you kind of mentioned it at Time Machine about sharks. So you're all salespeople. You're all looking, what is the environment like of working in, like, I know, you always, we always want to like go to work passionate, right? But if you're going in that and basically your colleague is trying to pull your pants down, um, what is it like going into that every day? And what kind of things would they like do to like, you know, mess you up? Oh my God. As the new kid, man, a few people took pity on me, but everyone, everyone was a shark. And, uh, I was surprised that I made it as long as I did, to be honest. I I was there for two and a half months and made my goal the entire time I was there, which is completely unheard of. And then I ended up getting, uh, because it was a recession and they had to lay off um, the last few people from every store, I technically got laid off and they were like, you can come back, reapply in six weeks. And I was just like, meh, I think this is, I think my chapter's done. But I, I had, I pissed so many people off because I actually like made my goals without any kind of history because I just got lucky, but I was, I was, wouldn't let these people take my sales or, or step on my toes. Cause I would see them take each other's um, sales and like fight to the death over it and bring in the management and yell and scream and cry. Um, so how does that happen? How do they take someone's sale? They give would them, like, give examples. So, so not, all sales don't happen immediately. People would come in and they would come in over and over. So somebody's on lunch or somebody's day off, somebody would come in and that person would come in and disregard it. They said, oh yeah, Tony helped me or something. And you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then like take the sale and put their number on it and like, and finish the sale. And the next day the person would come in and be like, what the hell? And, and they would raise hell and management would have to get involved and they have to, they'd split the sale and they'd be like, what the hell? Why are you, why are you taking half my sale? And it would be a whole thing. Sometimes it would happen in real time. You'd see somebody coming back from lunch while the other person's helping their thing and then like chaos would ensue and there was like this huge fight on the floor and the management are pulling them back to like stop yelling in front of jerry seinfeld like what are you guys doing you know so you know it was it was uh it was chaotic to say the least and like the stories i heard i was there as a trainer and i i trained some of these salespeople, and that was the most difficult thing because they did not want to hear it so as their peer it was even like oh now you think you're so good. You were, you, you were corporate and now you're, you're just one of us, like get the hell out of here. <laughs> and, and they, and I was also young. I was in my, I was in my mid twenties too. And some of these guys were older experienced. Some people, some of these guys had been there for 20 years. Like there was the oldest guy who spoke seven or eight languages and he was the biggest snake and everyone hated him, but they respected him because he was the oldest person. He had been there the longest. He knew he had every CEO's phone number in his, in his, in his, in his phone. In his Rolodex, just because cell phones weren't a thing like that. Um, and these guys were savage. They were they were just fighting tooth and nail, yelling and 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 causing scene a, a scene. There was a, a like if 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 reality TV had caught up and like had made this, this could have been a reality TV show, and it would have been extremely successful. And it probably would have pivoted the direction of watch sales um, because people would have been so enamored with watch sales people at the time in the mid 2000s prior to social media. Yeah. Um, right. It would have changed everything, but yeah. So when you say they're fighting over it, let's say a $100,000 watch, right? What is like the commission on a piece like that that went to the sales? So Torneau was, became so big 
and um, they became so lucrative. Um, it's not necessarily the best business model, and it's been it's been judged and corrected by a lot of different retailers over the years, which people believed salespeople shouldn't be hundred uh, percent commission or mostly commission. And Torneau thrived and grew and became successful because of it. So Torneau was a $50 a day place. You were basically like a waiter and you had to eat what you kill is what they say. Um, you didn't make any money if you weren't. Did you say $50 a day? Yes. Wow. At the time it was a, it was the time it was a very, very, it was like, okay, here's $250 a week. Once you after like went through training and they gave you so much money, they're like, okay, now you're on the sales floor. Go, you're making $250 a week. So people, when I, oh, my original store would come and, and I trained so many people, people came and went all the time and, you know, $500 for a two week period and minus taxes, they, they work two weeks and come away with like a $400 and change check it was insane. But if they weren't aggressive enough and like forward enough and like learned and like pushed, you saw every, you saw all the ugly, you saw every single side of people being desperate to sell things. And that's not a good environment for, for watch sales or the watch industry as a whole. And Torno became, that's why they kind of vanquished and kind of been banished from, from, and that's why people don't really know the story of like what happened, how they were such an important part of the watch industry and, and, and how we are into like pre-owned watches today. But they, they were kind of not, they didn't do well with, with the, uh, with the customer service bit and be by letting it be a bloodbath the the service hurt it hurt it hurt and people weren't crazy about torno it was kind of like the kmart of watches because you had these salespeople who were way too aggressive who were willing to lie to you or do anything to make the sale mm -hmm. and that hurt them mm -hmm. so that's ultimately what happened um in terms of physically right as a customer when i walk in is there like a some kind of like plan where you guys rotate who gets the next customer or is it just by chance Every retailer is different, but there used yeah. to be back in the day when people were, were so hungry to just grab every person and make all the <laughs> sales. You had to have an organized, what they call an uplist, or every store calls it something different. Um, but they, an uplist would be, would say, you'd put your, like you, whoever arrived in the morning first would write their name first. <laughs> and you would, you would arrive and you'd put your name on the list. Yeah. So then whoever worked there that day, you would be on this uplist. So the first person who came in yeah. to the floor of the store, you take the first customer and there were rules. There was a lot of rules and this was a lot of fighting based on, Oh, that was my customer. No, it was my customer yeah. and, and that stuff. Like, did you go to lunch or was your last customer a real yeah. customer? Yeah. Meaning that if someone came in and asked for directions, you'd be like, that doesn't count. Or if someone said, Oh, I need to service something. You'd be like, that doesn't count. But let's say someone comes in, yeah. ask for directions. The same time another person comes in and says, I want to buy the hundred thousand dollar restaurant. Now there's a huge fight. Because the person's like, that person left in five seconds and it wasn't a customer. This is my customer. We have to split that sale. And that became a thing on a daily basis in every store in every tornado around the country. Back to my original question. Now. I, sure. $100,000 watch, yeah. How much yeah. is the commission to the sale? Oh, I'm roughly? sorry. I, I, <laughs> um, I got into a lot of tangents. I'm sorry. Um, the Because it was 100% commission, you could make a lot of money. And it all was based on how cunning you were. So there was a percentage model. Every brand had a different percentage. And then depending on how you discounted, there was a percentage of a percentage. So I'll give you an example. Most mainstream brands were 5%. Cartier, 
paddock Rolex were 3% and they had a, a greater drop off. If you did a slightest bit of a discount, now you're taking a percentage, like let's say 80%, 50% or 25% of that three or five or whatever percent. So you were incentivized to not discount and to make people pay full price. Now, the one golden rule that would kind of separate this was if you did a trade-in, which is what Torno was known for so well, and they they kind of made that a thing in the 90s. Um, if you did a trade-in, regardless of what you did, even if you did a discount, if you somehow finagled, because there's never any discounts when you do a trade-in, because the trade-in, the discount off of the watch plus a very low like amount of watch that they're paying for was combined to give a higher value to the watch. It's let's say if you're you're trading in a, a tag Heuer and we value it at $800, but we're going to say we're going to give you $1,500 for this $3,000 watch because we took a percentage off of like a discount. So that's never discounted. But by doing this trade-in and it was very lucrative for them, they made a lot of money in business by doing this because they brought people in. They The, the salesperson would make 100% commission of the sale. So that was the loophole where it's like, there was this one story of a guy who sold a custom $1.1 million Vacheron. And this guy traded in a Turbion, like a one or $200,000 watch for it. And even though it might've been discounted, the guy came out with a clean, like, I think like a, in the high forties or $50,000 commission check for that one sale, because it was possible at the time. And especially when you did that, like you had that like trade in kind of loophole. Um, so it was an extremely lucrative business at the time where you, the, the, like I said, the people at the top floor of the of the time machine were were making like an ex, like a very, very, very huge salary for a watch salesperson. It was a different time and things have very much focused more on customer service and and salaries as opposed to, they people realize how, how savage and how detrimental to a company that can be. This is kind of a stupid question and not completely related to what you just said, but you said, I mean, you described yourself like a sponge, you tried to learn everything and you kind of knew you were good at selling, right? Why didn't you sell something else? Like, why didn't you go for something where the commission was higher, like cars? I actually, um, I actually, I actually tried my hand at, at, uh, at Audi for two months. <laughs> I actually, I actually liked it. I actually loved it. Um, I, I liked it. It's not as easy. It, I wasn't as inspired. It wasn't as specialized. And I still, to this day, float my mind. I'm like, why don't I just sell real estate or do yeah, something else? Exactly. And I, it's not, it's not completely out of the question. I mean, okay. I've, I've toyed with, I've toyed with real estate um, with a friend's company briefly one summer, and I, and I toyed with, um, with car sales. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's not bad. I mean, I like it. I just, I just, if I were going to do something, I've just, I've been so committed to watches for so long, and I love it, and I've, I've learned so much about it. And it was working at Paddock that kind of gave me that boost where I felt like I became more of a horologist and actual specialist because of the course that I had to take just to work there. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I went from being a, a salesperson to like an actual horologist, mm -hmm. I feel. So for that reason, it's a little different now because I feel like I've gotten like a master, master's degree, if you will, in this field. Um, not that it's not a good reason to go do something else because I am still fairly young and actually have a lot on my horizon in terms of what I might do. And, and it may not be watch related and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. We're on our last question, which is, could you share a good story or one that is in your memory um, of, you know, just in your watch sale career with a client, for example, like it was just a beautiful story. Or a bad one. Yeah, or a bad one. Yeah, you can make us laugh with a bad one or you can make us emotional with a good one. I would love to hear one of like him fighting in the store. 
<laughs> um, I mean, there's just so many I can't think of. Um, there is, I'll tell you, there was a, a client of mine. Uh, I'll tell you, there's a story that changed my perspective and is the reason why the love paddock happened. Um, if you're unsure, if you're familiar with the love paddock, there was uh, an article in Hadiki about it, about the watch that I had. I I was fortunate enough to buy a 5711 blue dial nautilus that was tiffany stamp when i worked for the company mm -hmm. and there was a philosophy of what i did with it and how i wore it which would eventually create this hashtag uh called the love paddock because i really wore it really well and i beat the hell out of it and uh, it was something that i had for a very long time it was part of my identity and it was amazing um but this all kind of came around because when i was there at tech fleet at the boutique i had a lovely gentleman one of my favorite clients took me for my first wiener schnitzel uh, a German vice president who uh, was, you know, unmarried, no children, lived in New Jersey half the time. And the other half of the time he was, uh, you know, back in Germany. But when he was around, he'd come and he was the most he was the sweetest person and and so humble and just so honored to be taken seriously and, and given the time to educate him on panic and everything and, and talk to him about what he should get. Mm -hmm. I helped him acquire quite a few pieces um that FLE deserved and and uh he was really 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 appreciative he understood the importance and hung on like every word and I remember you know I sold him a, a 5170J uh Tiffany stamp and a few other pieces important pieces and he would tell me Robert every day I open my safe and I, I take out my watches and they're double sealed. Okay. So because at the time you could do that, I leave them in the box that they came in shipping and give it to him like that with everything else. And you take them out of the safe. He's like, I look every day, I look at my watches and I, I look at my watches and I enjoy them. And I love them. And then I put them back in the safe. And then he would wear a fake Rolex like Explorer on the subway because he was afraid of getting mugged. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, God bless his man. I love him. He was great. But I was just like, that is exactly the opposite of what I would do with my life. Cause you've, you've reached these accolades and you've, you've made so much money. You became this person where you can afford these very fine things. But if you walk outside and get hit by a bus tomorrow, what was it? What was the point? What was it all for? <laughs> why, why even do that? Why even own these watches if you're not going to enjoy them? But I understand that from a business sense, a very savvy vice president of, of, you know, from Germany, he was very much like these things. Like if I were to cut these out of the plastic, I would lose so much value. Mm -hmm. And I think people get stuck in that, 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 that mindset that things need to be the most valuable. They need to be the most, like, this has to be X, Y, Z. And it's like, yeah, but what's the point? So that experience with this, uh, with this client who was my favorite client, I, we, we had a, a great relationship. I got him every single paddock magazine. Mm -hmm. I went into the archives of Paddock and like pulled out every single magazine they had and shipped it to him in Germany. And mm -hmm. he took me for my first Wiener Schnitzel and he bought me like a the Paddock box set. He was great. We just had such a great relationship over the years. But, you know, I haven't spoken to him in years. And, and to this day, I tell the story because, you know, nothing against him, but he kind of inspired me to not be that way. And I feel like there's people that come in our lives that either influence us uh, in a way that it's not always expected. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a really good story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, well, that was our last question of the main interview. We now go on to the reverso round, Rob. Do you have any, one question each? Yeah. Sh shoot. 
Um, I'm sorry if this has been asked before. I haven't heard all 126 or 30 something uh, episodes. And for that, I apologize. Uh, I've been trying to catch up. But I'm curious, um, what watch for each of you was the watch that before you knew anything about watches that said, oh, my God, I want that watch. <laughs> like maybe you saw an ad for Zenith or something. And then do you still keep that? Do you still have that watch? And how much has your how much has your love or how much has your change, your taste changed since that first watch? Cause I have a watch that I'm thinking of that I still never bought my first watch that I ever loved. I saw like an ad or something and my taste has changed so dramatically since then. What watch was yeah. that for you guys? I don't, I don't think I've like, uh, said this story before. Oh, right. But, um, yeah. So when I was a kid, uh, I lived in a place just outside London. Right. And then, you know, I was actually uh, my cousins and stuff. Right. Um, they live further up north, so I didn't really see very much of them. But, I, you know, I thought the world of them. Like, we really got on and stuff. And so I looked forward to holiday season. And um, when it came holiday season, you know, we would like go over to each other's place and maybe spend like, I don't know, three or four days. And it was just something I just looked forward to, you know, hanging around with them and messing around, playing computer games, this kind of stuff. And I remember my cousin, you know, he was about six months older than me. And just that six months was enough for me to like put him on the pedestal and, and just like think, oh, he's so cool. Right. And he actually had this, I don't know what the model was, but it was a Casio just watch. Right. And it, it, what caught my attention was the loom because it glowed in the dark. Right. And I remember like he gave the watch to me. And I was just like on the floor, right? I was like, oh my God, it's like such a great thing to have. I really loved it, really took care of it. And the thing with Neoloom is you, you try and charge it up, don't you, right? So you charge it up and you, you put it close to the light and you think, okay, at the nighttime, when it lights off, I can see it there and I feel, oh, this is so cool. And the thing, the younger kid, you think, well, the closer to the light I, I get to, yeah, the, the better it will be, yeah, because it just kept getting brighter right it doesn't necessarily last longer but it just comes off so bright and i had a lamp right and you know you've got the lampshade there and you know you've got the hole at the top of the lampshade and then you've got you know obviously you know it's open at the bottom right i put the watch here on the top hole right <laughs> so it could be right close to the actual watch yeah to get the <laughs> maximum benefit yeah and i thought i'll give you a half an hour charge here yeah so i did that and i came back and the watch had fallen down and the, has, the plastic crystal had melted, right? I was devastated. Oh I was God. absolutely devastated. Yeah, it, it just, oh. like, it really hurt me, you know? Oh. Like, yeah. Uh, obviously, I was a kid. So I, the fact that I can retell the story so accurately tells you how traumatized I was, right, <laughs> with the watch. And I guess that was the first time that I like to watch that much, right? It would be many years later before I got into like luxury brands, so to speak. And I'm sure it wasn't like why I got into those brands, but it was the first time I loved the watch. Yeah. I bet you're so careful with things now from that traumatic. Well, <laughs> I know not to make that mistake again. Let's put it that way. And, and, you, know, you know, whether it's a sapphire crystal or not, nothing's going there. You know, back then lamps were hot. You know, they're not yeah. this LED stuff. You know, if I if it was now, you'd be all right. <laughs> uh. Um, mine is easy. Um, first wanted 
the J12 in 2007. So whole of 2007 to 2010, which is my time in uni was just like, okay, I need, I need a ceramic watch. I need a ceramic watch. And then, so then it became my first, like what I would call like expensive watch when I could buy something. Um, And I still have it. And surprisingly, I still wear it sometimes, especially given a lot of robberies happened in Hong Kong and so on. And it's funny because the watch hasn't really changed. Like J12 is still the J12 shape it is now. And sometimes I think to myself, should I like revisit that model and then maybe buy another version of it? And then you look at the prices of the Sapphire and then you're like, forget it. It's like a mil USD, (laughs) 500K, like never mind. But in terms of taste, like definitely has changed. And I'm not saying that, I'm not saying the way I collect is correct. But I also realized very recently that for a super long time, I've been kind of embarrassed at the fact that I don't know how to curate. I don't know how to downsize. And everyone seems to be collecting by themes, right? Like by complications, by case sizes and so on. And mine has just been like rubbish, like all over the place. But I've slowly come to accept that it's kind of just like pictures of different moments in my life. And this is like, this is my 2007 phase. So, so be it. It's cheesy, but I like it. And I'm just going to leave things like that. Yeah. I love that. No, that's great. I, I do feel like certain things, like even tattoos represent, <laughs> they may not always make sense, but they represent yeah. an era of, of our lives of who we were at that time. Yeah. Um, so I agree with that with watches as well. Very much so. And I, I have a hard time selling anything, to be honest. I need to sell more watches. And I, I keep buying watches. And I, I do not need to be buying more watches constantly. <laughs> but I, I just got a uh, Chanel J12 Super Leggera. No um, okay. I literally just I just got it from service. I bought it and I yeah. sent it to Chanel and just got it service. And their service was it was amazing and how quick it was. Um, shout out to them. I'm so surprised. Um, and I got it for a steal. It's like a $9,000 Super Leggera. Yeah. I bought for, I don't even, I'm embarrassed to even tell you how much I got it for, because I got it for nothing. And I <laughs> just as much for the service. All right. Yeah. But, so I, yeah. I, I believe in going back and being like, oh, there's this watch I wanted 12 years ago. And it just yeah. happened to come up. I'm a, I'm an opportune buyer. So okay. I will wait forever until I, something in my list from like 20 years ago. Oh, it just, I just happened to find it. And it's a really good deal. I'm going to buy it. Okay. And that's why I've been buying right. watches recently. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that was a good round. Um, we'll go on to the pump push around, mm-hmm. which is just a couple of questions random. Right. Number one, Rob, in another life, what would you have wanted to be? Oof. Oof. Ah, I've um, stopped doing the tracks now, haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? So, um, I feel like I've, I'm old and I've been in this industry for a long time. Um, but I know that I have like, I'm looking forward to the second half, uh, and, and so much to do. But I would have, I probably would have done things differently if I had known uh, how to deal with certain things. Um, I won't get into that. But essentially, I I would have continued my education in psychology. And I am so much a behavioralist and so many people's uh, pseudo-therapists um, because I, in my other, out, my life outside of watches and a lot of my circles and communities, uh, community, like I'm a community leader and I do a lot of different things. I very much um, focus on behavioralism and just anthropology and cultures and, and just understanding. Um, so doing something with psychology or, or 
even psychiatry would have been something that's been up my alley. And it's not something that's, I'm not saying I'm, I don't plan on doing, cause I might actually, I'm like in the last couple of years, I've been researching like what schools and what avenue to go to. And I met so many people who do a two year program and become some sort of um, clinical therapist or uh, uh, all the different, the gamut of all the different options at my age range. Mm. And, what I do. and I feel like that's going to be the second half of my life. You know, I settle down, have kids and, and, you know, we'll be more focused on schooling and education and probably do something in that realm where I'd keep watches still in the back burner and still, be a consultant and still mm-hmm. help out where I need, I'm needed, you know, stuff like okay. that. Cool. Number two, a quote that you live by. Oh, so in my twenties, um, it was, uh, <laughs> now is no time to say goodnight. Um, uh, but in my thirties, um, it's not here yet. And maybe I'll do it. Maybe yeah. I won't. Um, now it's time to say goodnight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, <laughs> but, um, what changed my life? Um, sometime in this last decade, I discovered something called, um, I, it was just funny. I just saw a Tony Robbins video and it was something silly about like how to be more attractive or something for business insider. And essentially what he says in his 60 second video is that all day, every day we go through life and we are upset and we're angry at our bosses, our spouses, our president. We're, we're mad at people all the time because mm-hmm. we expect something from them. And then when they don't come through, we become upset. If we had lived every day and we lived our life with gratitude and we were grateful mm-hmm. for what we had and where we were, we'd live such happier, more fulfilled lives. And that, you know, one thing that he had said was a, was a pivot and a, a direction change in my life that completely helped me. I think even out of like whatever depression or anxiety I may have had, mm-hmm. um, it just helped me completely turn around my life. And that's what I live by now is like gratitude over expectations on a daily basis. And mm-hmm. I like to reverse engineer it. If you're ever upset about anything, if you're ever upset, mm-hmm. just think, why are you upset? It's because you expected something from someone, even if it's something as like, okay, I, I'm really upset because I got in a car accident and you're upset because you didn't expect to be in a car accident that day. And it's not your fault and that's okay. But I think understanding why we're upset and then being grateful for whatever it is where we are will help reverse that. And then that just makes your life so much better. And I found so much more happiness and I've met, I feel like I'm beyond fortunate with the amount of people and love I have in my life and in every field and every category, even with Instagram, with how how terrible it can be i still find the beauty and the grace of the people who like i'm grateful for the people who are there and they like contact me they message me they send me nice things and all that stuff because i rather focus on the positive as opposed to negative so that's interesting it's interesting how often on this podcast right people bring up the negative aspects of instagram it's not like something tangible like they don't necessarily say this obviously it could be like bad comments right but there's a general kind of consensus that it's not healthy you know there's it, it's just that it's just that thing that everybody seems to understand you know um so it's just inter- I just something i noticed but it's, anyway we'll go on to the there, yeah. there's there's a science behind it you know i've studied social media the entire time from the very beginning because i was in social media before instagram and the watch community started and helped like played a huge role in like building communities on, on instagram um and then through live meetup groups but I, I've studied it so much and can tell you a lot of it has to do with it. We were going to come to a turning point. We we're going to come to a head and it's only a matter of time. And we've gone there. We're in this position. Everyone likes to think, okay, 2017, when watches became unavailable, like, why did that happen? And I think so many people still ask that question. When I was in clubhouse or giving, you know, uh, lectures anywhere or like in podcasts, I would explain to people, it was a matter of time that 
the luxury industry was going to catch up with social media and we were just going to have too many people in this field. And that's not a bad thing, but ultimately people would be end up, the demand would be so high. It would, out, it would, it would, it would overcome the supply. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with the vitriol hate that is on, you know, on the internet, like the internet's only so many years old, right? Like 20, 30 years old. And it was going to be a matter of time where you're going to have more trolls. And you're going to have more people who were fighting behind a veal who can benefit and get their rocks off by being negative than being positive. And we don't have enough positivity online because we have so much negativity. And I've seen people like tank uh, that there's a few Instagram like uh, role models. There's a few social media celebrities who have focused on more positivity, but it's just, it's so few and far between it tabloids and everything else since the dawn of time has always been more successful. Even mainstream media and news has always been more successful with the negativity because you get more eyes, you get more, more traction. So for, so because of all that today, you're going to get more negativity. You're going to get more, more people who are more negative. And we've just come to a point where now it just makes more sense that when you see a Hadinki post and like there's eight comments on it and all of them are, or seven of them are hateful. It's because not enough people are saying, Oh, I really like this. And are being positive about it. And then once you see all these people kind of pile on, you're kind of just like, I just want to remove myself from situation. And that's what's happened. A lot of people for their own benefit have gone away. Yeah. Right. Next one. Uh, I quite like this question. I came off it like just today. But number five, what's the best time of the day for you? Ooh, that is a really good question. I don't really know. I think um, it should be early in the morning and I want to be more of a morning person. I feel like I will be as I get older and have to wake up early to raise kids and stuff like that. Um, I'm not I'm not I'm not an early morning person, but. I want to be. So when I do have early mornings, I'm so much more productive. Mm-hmm. I'm healthier and I got a lot more done. Um, so I'll wake up and wake up early and choose a watch or three and uh, set the time and, and go on my day uh, based off yeah. of what I'm wearing and the weather. I think if you get the morning right, kind of the afternoon kind of like sorts itself out a lot. of the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I thrive at night um because i'm like neodivergent and i definitely get more things done when the world's sleeping um which is just a battle that i've been fighting my entire life i'm just trying to i'm trying to be more productive during the day because i know i'll do better during earlier i think I hon- the whole yeah. hong kong have that same battle <laughs> <laughs> hong kong just like really bad like that yeah. everyone in spain too if you ever been in spain you go to barcelona and everyone's like having dinner at 1 a.m i'm like jesus i get it now i get why i get it from my people. <laughs> yeah right next one um one thing other than family and work that is important to you? Um, one of the most important things to me is relationships. Um, I, for whatever reason, um, I've always been about meeting people, serving people, talking to people, nurturing relationships. It's such an important part of my life on a daily basis. It, It's my full-time job. Um, it's something that I will probably figure out and monetize a little better. <laughs> I don't really want to because I don't really care that much about the the financial aspect to it. Because to me, I feel like I'm so rich based on my relationships and the ones I've nurtured over the years and the decades. Um, so that's probably the most important thing to me is just making people feel seen, making them feel heard, learning something from people on a daily basis, educating people on a daily basis. Mm. It's my greatest pleasure. Okay. That's that's a great thing. Um, next one, a difficult choice you've had to make in the past. Ooh, I mean, hmm, 
I don't know. You may have caught me off guard. I don't know. There's um, what difficult choices. Um, I think one of the diff- I mean, well, to be honest, um, if it, if I can keep it watch related, it's whether or not to make the story of the Love Paddock public or not. And I sat on it for three and a half, almost four years. Um, it got stolen in 2018, and there's no book, there's no rule book, there's no right answer to how to deal with that. And I think at the time, occasionally you would see on Instagram, oh, this guy's Grupal Forzy, one of 10 got stolen. Yeah, if that shows up in the market, he's going to get it back. And plus, if he has a Grupal Forzy, I'm pretty sure he's okay. And he has a lot of money, has a lot of other watches. I think he'll be all right. Mm. Um, And he can even put up a a reward. But you have to understand my story of how I got the watch was a a series of variables that were extremely rare and specialized. I come from poverty. I was never wealthy. (laughs) I mean, I feel like I'm I'm grateful that I grew up in a house, but... Um, you know, I have immigrant parents who to this day will never understand how expensive watches can be, or that I probably even owned a watch in, in the five figures. They probably, I'm pretty sure don't know that. And it's fine. They really can understand that. But for me to lose such an important part of my identity that helped me in my career, helped catapult me on Instagram because I had this extremely rare watch and I was beating the hell out of it and doing everything and anything with it and trying to change a culture of 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 watches being these these assets to something we actually wear and, and use um it had become a huge part of me so when i lost it i was beyond confused and and uh the anguish and just i was so i didn't know what to do and i i was i had to make a difficult decision to either scream from the top of the of the, of the you know of the hills and just and tell everyone on the planet or keep this a secret because whoever has it, whatever random collector in whatever part of the world who might have it might see that it's a stolen piece and either flip it and will lose it or they'll keep it a safe for 50 years or, or whatever. And to this day, that's still a, a very big, um, I still worry about it. I'm like, I have no idea where the watch is and I don't know who has it. And I knew that if I were like, Hey, here's the serial numbers, here's this and here's that. And this is the watch. If you had spent $50,000 on a watch that you didn't know was stolen and you're like, Oh crap. Now, what do I do with this? I'm going to shove it in a safe or or or, dis- or take it apart. Who knows what they're going to do? But they're just, I, I there was every thought in my head popped and I just didn't know what to do. And it was a very difficult decision to say, I can't talk about this until I'm ready. And it was a difficult decision to say, you know, I reached out to a good friend. I've done Logan since before. He was like, he started in, you know, in journalism, like right when he started with Watch Time. And He's been a good friend. You know, I, I I talked to him throughout his career about what to do and moving up. And I'm so proud of him. And now that he has a really good prominent role with Houdinki, I thought it was, it was finally time. And he asked me, he's like, do you want to do the story? And I was like, you know what? I think it's, I think it's time. I think we have to do this. And it was difficult because I kind of, I'm a very private person as much as I'm public facing and social media and everything else. I'm actually extremely private. And people don't know the, like a fraction of like my life and what I actually do. And, uh, I felt like, I guess it was time I needed to do it. And when I did, so many people came out and talked to me and and told me how much they appreciated it. And people like Will Messina were just like, you need to put the numbers out there and you need to have done this sooner. And like, I, I'm glad you did it. I read your story. And it was very heartfelt. And a lot of people in the industry had reached out to me and said, you know, I, I'm really proud. Of you. I'm glad you did this. And if you need any help, X, Y, Z, you know, so on and so forth. So I'm glad I did well, it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Um. Yeah, so that actually ends the episode. It's been a pleasure to have you on, but we are going to have you on again for the second part, right? Which 
is going to be basically about independent brands. Um, I look forward to that. Um, yeah. So thank you everybody for listening. Um, make sure you tune in for part two. Catch you later. Bye. Thanks. As always, thank you for listening to the waiting list podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at the waiting list podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.